I'm so excited, I'm so excited, it is great, it is just fantastic. What are you so excited about, Angel? Uh, because finally everything is working well. I have had my new equipment, mm -hmm. astronomical equipment, since July last year. Mm -hmm. And because of, well, you know, clouds and bushfires and dust. <laughs> <laughs> and also busy with life and uh, work. But finally, during the last uh, few weeks, I have been able to put everything together and get everything working, working well. And I'm taking these amazing images even Yay! from here, from my backyard. Ah! Ah! I'm so happy for you. This is fantastic. I'm very excited about that. And that is why I'm suggesting that we can be talking about astronomical equipment today. It sounds fantastic. Let's get into it. Great. Let's go for that. I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Hello everyone, I think you're all very excited for this episode as we are as well. Welcome to episode 35 of all of our episodes, season 3, episode 8. Okay, you did your math this time. I did, yes, I double checked. But yes, welcome everyone to episode 35. I'm very excited for this episode. Angel, as you heard, is very excited for this episode as I am, well. I am, I am. <laughs> <laughs> He's just holding it all in, we're ready to go, we're ready to have some fun and talking we are astronomy equipment but as first feedback we still have more feedback to go through so let's get to it yeah we actually have plenty of feedback that we have received during the last uh, few weeks but also the feedback that we didn't answer after the previous episode mm -hmm. but uh, let's go for it in twitter cherry gladman from great australian pot and they added the scientists there yay <laughs> so well, that is a great thing. Thank you very much. So it's in the Great Australian Podcast. Oh, the Great Australian Podcast. We're yeah. great. We're fantastic. That's awesome. Thank uh, you. Yeah, we, are, we are getting there. Good. So I have here another question from Willie Royal in Twitter. With the universe expanding, what will happen on Earth when gravitational forces from our solar system no longer have any effect? Will life prevail? Okay. Let's attack this question. So, yes, the universe is expanding. Most people who are interested in space and the universe would at least have heard of the expansion of the universe. So, the universe is expanding on a very large scale. So, if you think about wherever you are right now in the room, in your car, or wherever you are right now, nothing around you is expanding through space-time significantly where you are right now. Consider the country that you're in. It's not expanding due to space-time significantly. The Earth, the solar system, even the Milky Way galaxy isn't expanding due to space-time. Because, or at least it's not significant. The expansion of space-time is much more significant between huge, large clusters of galaxies. So, before there's any effect of expansion of space-time on our solar system, we have many other things that we have to worry about. <laughs> For example, killer asteroids hitting on the Earth. <laughs> Uh, the sun swelling up into a gas giant and gobbling up the Earth, and there might be a supernova near us that could destroy life as we know it. There are plenty of more things to worry about than this. That is right, yes, definitely. Um, however, I will say that that is one of the ways, the way that we understand now uh, cosmology, mm -hmm. that the universe might end, which is called the Big Rip. Yes. The expansion of the universe is so fast, so accelerated, that it's even able to disrupt the not only the atoms, but the nuclei. Mm. So break everything. The so big everything, quantum everything rip. Apart. The big quantum rip. Mm. So, yeah, that, that is something. But we still don't know even if that will happen mm. eventually or not. But that also has to do with the dark energy, the amount of dark energy, how much that is doing that the universe is in accelerated expansion. There is still plenty of research that we have to do in that area. Yes, always. But always. in any way, it is an awesome question. A very clever question, by the way. It is. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And also, just by the way, there's, uh, you have, just think about all of the 
ends to the universe that we currently have theorized. The big rip. Yikes. The heat death of the universe. Oh no. The big crunch. Oh boy. <laughs> they're, they're all big and they're all a bit terrifying, which is hilarious. Okay, there's some few of them. I think that uh, regarding this topic, we might come in some moment in the future, in the near future, because our friend Katie Mack, Astro mm. Katie, she's about to release a book about the end of the universe. Yes. And she's talking about all the different scenarios that we are very briefly pointing out here now. Wonderful. On to the next piece of feedback. Yeah, let's go. So we actually got some nice feedback from our previous episode about Global Cluster. Oh, fantastic. So it seems that people love it. Good. So that's good. For example, uh, Colin Petit in Twitter, Globular Cluster are my favorite deep sky objects. So yay. Yay. So thank you for that. And of course, our friend Cafuego <laughs> <laughs> tried to get an image of the Globular Cluster MM13 because mm -hmm. that was the one that we also included for WhatsApp yes. in our previous episode. But he says, WhatsApp M30 only ever manages 15 degrees elevation at best in Melbourne, so that is a no-go. No, <sighs> unfortunately. Yeah, pity. But anyway, still, you can see it. I, I, I have seen from Cordoba, from the south of Spain, I have seen Omega Centauri, and Omega Centauri only rises five-ish degrees mm. over the horizon. So, yeah, you can still try. <laughs> so he also said... But it turned out I snapped it wide angle two years ago from Europe through when setting up for a summer triangle shot. Excellent. So there it is. He actually shared with us some few photos of the large uh, part of the sky, a, a wide angle photo. And, and there it is, uh, one of the little stars. It's actually M13. Oh. So after that, we have some few questions from Gary. A new listener of ours. Um, Welcome to the team, Gary. Oh, thank you very much. So he has been uh, listening in a row to all our episodes, mm -hmm. which I'm very proud of. Although he's still having issues with my accent. Apologies for that. I really, really try to improve as much as I can. <laughs> Uh, ironically, I will say that sometimes our native Spanish speaker listeners, they find me very easy to understand, <laughs> but they cannot get some of the things that Kirsten says. <laughs> <laughs> I will try better too. <laughs> <laughs> when she is too excited, but that happens to all of us. And particularly, I know, I know, I'm, when I'm too excited, I should try to breathe and take it easy and just vocalize every single word. He has some few comments. For example, the first one, Hey guys, it's still catching up, current in episode 10, and we are talking about the star that lose part of the staff in election event. And that Angel, must have been Ida Karina. Yeah, probably we are yeah. talking about Ida Karina. And Angel was referring to, and he was talking about wall-rated star. So have either of you made a point of observing a wall-rated star? What do you think? I first heard about them in a fictional book called The Wounded Sky, the only fictional book I have read with a bibliography. I personally haven't observed any Wolf Riot stars because well, I didn't do any observing in honours and now in my PhD I'm mostly observing red clump stars, which are kind of like red giants, but they have helium burning in their cores, which I'm sure I'll talk about them <laughs> at some point in the future when I learn more about them. For sure. <laughs> Definitely. But Wolf Riot stars, they are... They're quite quite majestic, aren't they? Yeah, and they're not many. No, they're, not, only, they're only very rare. They're very, very, very rare. Reminding everyone these are the descendants of the most massive stars in the universe. So only stars that have masses of more than 25 to 30, even perhaps 35, the mass of the sun, oh, will enter Phew. into the world rocket phase that lasts only for 100,000 years, perhaps even less. Which is, it sounds like a long time to us, but that is it's just, straight away. It's just nothing. The world of the phase, it is when the star is doing basically a striptease. It's just losing the majority of uh, the external layers of mm -hmm. the star, just developing very strong stellar winds. And the mass loss is just crazy. So these are very powerful engines in galaxies. And that is why I started observing them and trying to understand this rare objects, not locally in our Milky Way, but in 
distant galaxies. If you see a star cluster with world-rated stars in galaxies, and we can say that, we can identify them because of the properties they have, I'm not going to enter into the details here, mm. then you can even define that galaxy as a world-rated galaxy. Ooh. And that is, I think I have told that, the name of world-rated Lobo Rayado, where it's coming from. Anyway, but mm. that joke, perhaps in the moment I did that in 2003, where were you in 2003? 2003, I was in year two. Okay. So you were you were in the age that my son is. Yes. Okay, interesting. So <laughs> yeah, I would have been in, six, six or seven. In that time, when I was starting my PhD thesis, I was observing this kind of object. Anyway, I'm moving away from your question, Gabriel. Sorry for that. <laughs> um, there are some few stars that you can actually observe, even with an amateur telescope and Ooh. by yourself. One of the brightest, actually the brightest for us, it is the Gamma 2 Velorum, which is in the constellation of Bella, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. That is why it's called Velorum, Gamma 2 Velorum. And I'm guessing, is it part of a binary? I... Uh, Yes, it is it's part of a two? binary. The only thing I don't remember if it is a physical binary or not. I think it uh, is just a projective. Yeah. Yeah, because just a double. Yeah, there are a plenty, visible double. There, there is a, a, a big cluster around there, which is R one hundred and thirty six superstar cluster, and uh, this star is around one hundred and sixty five thousand light years from us in the large Magellanic cloud actually, ah. but you can see it with your telescope. However, I would recommend observing another world rated star, which is very nice, and actually you can get the nebulosity even with a small telescope. Oh, And that is a world rated star 124, which is located in the Aquila constellation, if I remember well, sorry, no, in Sagitta. In the Arrow, in the Arrow constellation, a little constellation that is uh, between uh, Sagittarius, Scutum, and that area there. Mm. Um, so you can see it from both the northern and the southern hemisphere. And this world rated 124 is forming a very nice nebula around it mm. that is called M167. And even with a small telescopes, you can see the nebulosity. That's very cool. So they are, of course, you need power to resolve it. That is the image I was showing you, Kirsten, here. Mm -hmm. The image that, by the way, was the astronomical picture of the day by NASA just um, two or three days ago. A fantastic image of this nebula obtained with the Hubble Space Telescopes and reprocessed by amazing astrophysicist Judy Smith. You can also say that an older version of that that I reprocessed was one of the first images in my PhD thesis. Ooh. Including the very same image that I obtained using one of the small, the 80 centimeter telescope in the Canary Island Observatories mm -hmm. to get this star. So perhaps that would be also an interesting follow-up for the big topic that we are going to have today. Yes, very much so. Gary has also some few other comments and questions. So again, thank you very much for that. Let me read this one. Catching up still, most of 16 this morning, I think you indirectly answered this and Google helped, but all most comets turn into dead comets eventually. Has anyone done modeling to see when the more frequent comets will expire? Ooh, I don't know. Have, have there been? That particular, probably not. Mm. That particular study, there is some way of estimating per comet, mm -hmm. so I think. But it is probably not very easy to say that. Although perhaps instead of just giving our comments, perhaps we can check it. <laughs> <laughs> but answering the other question, the first question regarding if all the dead comets become asteroids, that seems the case in some way. When you have your naked comets that mm -hmm. have already lost of the water, the ice, the gases, and it is just a kind of a rock, it seems that it might stay like an asteroid, but not moving in the standard orbits of asteroids, because the orbits of asteroids or comets are usually very, very different. Very, yeah. Very, very different. Awesome. Well, I think we'll leave it there for our feedback for this episode. We'll, we'll continue with more feedback next episode. But now on to our 
I think it's a pretty fun segment. I like this segment. Space news! Yay, space news! Space news! You go first, because I have been talking for a while. Yes, I will go first. So, my space news this episode is uh, related to a space news, or actually, did we do a topic on it? I really should remember more about our episodes. But Aboriginal astronomy has gotten global recognition once again. I'm very excited about this. So, a few episodes ago, uh, maybe in season one, Definitely we mentioned that in one of our first episodes regarding the names of the Southern Cross stars mm -hmm. in our original names. And yep. then in episode 27, 27, the last episode in season 2, you were mentioning also that uh, it was actually the WhatsApp oh. to observe Epsilon Scorpii that yes. now has the official name Larawag. Larawag. That's right, yes. So we have mentioned a few a few times Aboriginal star names, but two more stars are now officially going to be known by their indigenous names. And I'm so excited, I'm so happy about this. That brings the tally up to six, actually, maybe seven. But let me go through this. So we have two additional Aboriginal star names that are approved by the working group in the International Astronomical Union. These are, the, I talked about it in an earlier episode. These are people from around the world, different cultures, astronomers and astrophysicists that come together to make a list of official names for these not-so-bright stars. But it is fantastic. So we have two more stars. We have Gunibu, mm -hmm. which is 36 Ophiuchi. Ophiuchi. Okay. Ophiuchi, yes, in, in Ophiuchus. In, in the zodiacal constellation of Ophiuchus, mm. meaning that the path of the sun seen from the Earth is crossing that constellation. It does indeed. Uh, there is a Gamilaroi and Ualii word, so from the New South Wales, a New South Wales group, quite a bit north. Actually, what am I talking about? Gamilaroi is where the AAT is. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. The Australian Anglo-Australian Telescope and Siding Spring Observatory is situated on Gamilaroi land. And so Gunibu, 36 Ophiuchi, is now officially known by that name. And it's a name for a flame robin, mm -hmm. which is a bird. Yes, it should be. It sounds like a bird. Since it's yep. a bird. <laughs> And the second one is Gudja, which is Kappa Serpentis. Mm -hmm. In the constellation of Serpent, so it's That's just it. very close to it. Mm. Actually, Serpent is broken in two because of Eucos, it is the person who is carrying holding the, the serpent, serpent, holding the serpents. That's right. So it's, it's depending how you count serpents, you might get 88 of 89 official constellations mm. because it's broken in two in Serpents the, the, the head and Serpents the tail. Ah, there you go. Does it have different names? In Latin, uh, Serpens Caput and Serpens Cauda or something like that. Right. Um, but usually the genitive, it is just Serpens. Yeah, yeah, just for the... So you cannot say... So I will say it is the same constellation broken in two mm -hmm. yeah. for having something different in the sky. And you know what? <laughs> Guja is the waterman word for a water goanna. A water goanna. A water goanna. <laughs> so kind of close, you know, the same sort of family of, of animals. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not just those two stars. A bit of a story from a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, is uh, there was a recent exoplanet competition to name a few exoplanets. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I and remember that. And there was... A set of indigenous names which was fantastic. So we got Bubba, which is the name of the star, HD 38283. It's a good number. Hmm. <laughs> I like it. And then the exoplanet is named named as Bunwarung, which is a word meaning child. Oh. Yeah. Child. Which is very cute. Nice. The planet is the child of the star. Oh, so nice. Isn't it mm -hmm. sweet? So yeah, so I'm very excited about that new space news. Just Aboriginal astronomy, getting more recognition worldwide. Couldn't be happier. Good. Okay, for me today, I'm not bringing one, not bringing two, I'm bringing three little space news. Three? <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, first, the first one, it is Betelgeuse status. I mean, we basically, have, we, we need to have a, a whole segment to this, don't we, yeah, at this point? But, but yeah, uh, let's go to say that uh, the latest estimation, visual estimation of the brightness of Betelgeuse, it is 1.29. That's pretty good, it's getting brighter. It's getting brighter as it was predicted. And briefly, because we already mentioned many things in the previous episode, but just between the moment that we recorded that episode and the moment we released the episode, our last episode, mm -hmm. there was a paper published in Astro PH, still is going under referee, 
but it was published in, uh, and given uh, the visibility that it deserves. A paper by Emily Levesque and Philip Massey. They actually have got some very good data of Betelgeuse. And the title it is Betelgeuse just isn't that cool. Effective temperature alone cannot explain the recent timing of Betelgeuse. And again, it is emphasizing that the main thing that it seems that had happened in the start it is some ejection of dust. Mm-hmm. And that have in some way obscured a part of the star. And that seems happens from time to time. They cannot completely uh, say no to a big, huge sunspot or uh, convecting cell, something like right. that. Yeah. But it seems much more logical, also given what we have seen in these fantastic images by taken by the ESO telescopes, mm-hmm. that it is the, the dust obscuring the star. They are able even to get the current effective temperature of Betelgeuse is 3,600 plus minus 25 kelvins. Oh. Very nice. So they propose that episodic mass loss and increasing on the amount of large grain circumstellar dust along our sat line, most likely explanation for the recent photometric evolution of Betelgeuse. So let, let's go to say that because it seems problem solved. <laughs> problem solved. So I will bring the magnitude of Betelgeuse in the future, but probably not taking that much unless we have news. <laughs> the other two news I have actually are very much connected. These two news are regarding citizen science projects. Fantastic. One, we love some citizen science. Yes. One that's after. 21 years is finishing. Oh, which one is this? SETI at home. Ah, the very Seti. first big one. I mean, not, not the big one, the very first one. Mm. So imagine that this started in some moment in the 99 or so. Yeah, I remember I was still an undergraduate student in uni having one of these big computers we have in that moment. And we download it, and then when the computer was doing nothing and we were not using it, it was a screen saver mm-hmm. that it was just processing random data that they have obtained from different telescopes, usually radio telescopes, to try to find signals from intelligent life. Mm. That is the SETI at home. And it was yes. the very first one, even before the Galaxy Soup, Citizen Science Project doing astronomy. But uh, they are putting it in hibernation. Mm-hmm. They have analyzed all the data. They have not found anything. And now they're trying to develop new ways of processing data, analyzing the results, and how they're coping with all the new data that they are getting from different observatories and different facilities. Mm-hmm. So it is not the end of the SETI at Home Citizen Science Project. They will be back. Eventually. Yeah. So that's good to know. I want to thank uh, our friend Cam, also Scooter, because that also came as a feedback mm-hmm. in some way. Hey, have you seen that? Yes, we have seen it and we wanted to, to mention that in, in the episode. So there we go. However, and that is my third news, you can go now and check the new citizen science project in Su Universe that is called Radio Galaxy Su. Lofa. Lofa. Lofa, yes. Mm. So I think perhaps we have talked about Radio Galaxy Zoo in the past. You have radio images and then optical images or infrared images and you try to match the radio emission with what you see. The idea behind all of this is to try to identify supermassive black holes in the center of galaxies Mm -hmm. and the radio lobes. Yes. That is radio galaxies and these jets of, of the AGNs, active galaxy nuclei, are, are inducing in the intergalactic space. So we had this uh, program, this citizen science program, run using data mainly with, uh, taken in Australia, the very first radio galaxy zoo project. And actually I have published a couple of papers I collaborated in that citizen science program. Very nice. But now they are using data from the low frequency array, a radio interferometer in the Netherlands, that has 20,000 omnidirectional antennas, 
So these are not radio telescopes that they are, so it would be mm. just antennas, mm -hmm. because they're observing at very low frequencies. That is why it is called the low frequency array. Low <laughs> um, no Yeah, 230 and 10 megahertz, which is corresponding in wavelength 1.3 to 30 meters. That's that a is, that's a big range of wavelengths. But very low frequencies. Imagine mm. that when we are saving radio astronomy, for example, to get the diffuse, the H1 gas, the neutral gas, the hydrogen mm. coal gas, we are saving at 1.4 gigahertz. Yes. So that is an order of magnitude larger yes. than this. They have opened this project and then you can go and check if the identifications that they have automatically done are correct. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you find three blobs together and you can say, are the three blobs independent? Are three different radio galaxies and radio objects? Or are they actually aligned? And you can ah. say, okay, the center one, it is the galaxy, because you see that with mm -hmm. your optical image, and the other two are the radio lobes. Yes. And that is very, very helpful for, for us. And so far, doing it automatically, in some way of machine learning thing, it seems hard. And it is much, much easier having... People. People. People, are, people can see things. Mm -hmm. Machines, not so much sometimes. Good. Oh, fantastic. More citizen science. We love it. Yay. We love it. Well, our main topic for today. Astronomy at home, essentially. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've talked about telescopes before. We've described the difference between a few different telescopes, more affordable ones, which ones that you can take home from different stores near you. But we're going to talk about equipment today because there's more to observing than just having a telescope, isn't there, Angel? Oh, yes, definitely. It is much more. If you've seen any photos on Angel's Twitter, you'll see just how much equipment there is when it comes to setting up the telescope to observe something like you did just the other night. Yes, well, actually last night. <laughs> last night was observing with my new equipment and that is why I was so excited about all of that because I got everything working. You see nice images of diffuse galaxies and nebula and so on. But getting images of those, you see many of them by amateur astronomers, some very good images. But wow, it is not that easy as it seems. Mm. It is not enough having a good telescope. That's it. You also have to have some few other things. So, thought we'd start it off because I'm I don't I just have an I just have a telescope. That's it. Our well. I have a telescope and a little attachment that you can put your phone up to the eyepiece mm -hmm. to take photos. That's about as much as I have, and I'm sure others have probably just about the same or even less than that. Um, so I guess I want to start off by asking you, what is the most important piece of equipment other than the telescope? Well, I think it is an easy answer. You need a very good mount. A mount? A ah. mount for a telescope. I yes. would say that that will be the second most important thing, but not the last thing that you need. Mm -hmm. So actually you need all the other little things you want to do deep sky observations. Right. So let's stop here for a moment. It also depends on what you want to achieve, what kind of images you want to get with your amateur telescope. Because mm, you, you could want to look at planets mm -hmm. or then... like what you like to do, deep sky objects. Yes. And the techniques must be very different and for both of those things. They're very different. And you already mentioned that uh, you like observing the moon. I do. Perhaps getting this, some few images of Jupiter and Saturn, with even with the phone. Mm, I've got a few nice ones of Jupiter and Saturn with my and, phone. <laughs> and that is what it is very amazing living in these times, that right now you can actually even put handheld the phone to the eyepiece of your telescope mm -hmm. and you can get amazing images of the moon and the planets. Particularly the moon. The planets is a bit more challenging. Planets can be a bit challenging, yes. The contrast is a bit challenging to deal with. However, I will say here, first you need a telescope and you need a decent telescope. I'm not going to say a good telescope because prices also are crazy. But you mm. don't, we talked about telescopes and apps in episode number 18 mm -hmm. in season 2. And we emphasize there the very basics and we really invite everyone to have a, a look or have a listen <laughs> to that episode because I don't want to repeat any more things there. But I'm going to say this. Don't buy a telescope just for the power or the magnification. No. Remember. Yes. <laughs> just the only thing I'm going to say. So just go to a special retailer that you can get a 
good telescope that even it is small, it doesn't have to be very, very big, only, mm. let's say... I mean, mine's only five inches wide. Five inches, mm. yes. 80 millimeters, it is the telescope I have been using, mm. but it has a good quality. So these kind of telescopes, small, compact, are much better for beginners. Definitely much better for beginners. Mm. Because of several reasons I can say later. Particularly because doing the guiding and the, the right tracking of the stars will be much easier because you are not putting too much magnification in there. That's right. But yes, if you're looking for a telescope to buy, head to episode 18. Yes, please go there. But just with that, you can get one of these adapters to put your phone mm -hmm. and then you're happy. What I will say here, for example, for observing the moon or even the planets, it's just taking many, many shots. Lots of photos. Lots of photos. Okay. That is also very important for everything doing astrophotography. <laughs> <laughs> many photos. And then you later can combine all those photos and get a much better quality, a much better even resolution image oh. than the one that you are obtaining with a single frame in your phone. Okay, I will keep that in mind for next time I'm taking some photos. Take lots of photos and then stack them together? Yes, stack them together. There okay. are some few particular software. I'm not going to go into the software now. But so we're I talking will... about equipment today. Yes, but I will mention briefly a couple of things before we wrap up. Okay. okay? You can also attach a DSLR camera. Mm -hmm. The good thing about the DSLRs, well, right now they're relatively cheap to get mm. one of those. Even better, there are some few that don't have an infrared filter that uh, is blocking part of the emission of the H-alpha line that is very important for getting nebulas. Mm -hmm. So these are the astronomically modified cameras and it's still more or less at the same price, the same cost. And you can use that camera for your other photos. So you replace the lens and instead of putting another lens, you just attach to the back of your telescope. Just put the camera at the back of the telescope. Yeah, put it there. Of course, you need an adapter. I was about to say, like, do we, surely most, most, like, the opening that I have at the back of my telescope is pretty small, probably about the size of the microphone in front of me. Mm -hmm. And most DSLR cameras are yeah. pretty big. Well, that is, I, I should have, have it here, but anyway, <laughs> to show you. Usually, you will have a telescope that have 1.25 inches. Usually, that is a small. You can also have a telescope that have, for the eyepiece, a 2 inches. Mm -hmm. These are the two um, standard sizes. Usually for beginners it is the 1.25 and you can get an adapter that is just like an eyepiece in one end that you put there and the other end it is a kind of the thing that you attach to the camera and you just mm. pluck and you put it there directly. Perfect. And then you got the focus. You have to work to try to get the best focus possible and that is also tricky. Mm -hmm. That is That will be a full episode about how to focus the telescope <laughs> and believe me if you don't get a good focus, you will not get good images. Well, take take Hubble, for example. <laughs> they, <laughs> they didn't have good focus at the no. beginning and you didn't get good photos. So, yes, focus is very important. Focus is very important. Have a look to it carefully. And then you go. You can get, and just with that, you can get amazing images of the moon and even the planet when you combine them all together, or the mm. different frames together. That is the way, for example, my son and me have been taking very nice images of the moon that we have been using almost everywhere. Perfect. So, we've kind of covered the different techniques. Well, we've covered planets and planets. the bright things. Mm -hmm. So how do we take photos of the dim things, the deep, far away, deep sky objects? How do we cover that? Well, that is the tricky part, at least. First of all, you need the telescope, you need a good mount, and you need the camera. The camera still can be a DSLR camera, it's fine, and actually sometimes DSLR cameras are working very well for large nebula and large star cluster, Orion, Nebula, the Pleiades, Carina Nebula, because DSLRs have a very wide field of view mm -hmm. when you put what we call a primary focus, because you're using the telescope as a lens. Right. Okay. But the problem here, it is that for the moon and for planets, you are taking shots that perhaps are one one hundredth of a second, one two hundred fifty. Mm -hmm. I try to get that range, one one hundredth, just to avoid any kind of vibrations and to be sure that you are getting the good scene moment. But for deeper sky objects, you need minutes. 
at least, at least seconds, let's say, for mm. Orion Nebula with my telescope, 20, and my telescope is an 80 millimeters, the one I'm using now, refractors, 600 millimeters in focal length. With 20 seconds, I almost get the nebulosity saturating the camera. And okay. you don't want saturation. No, saturation would no be saturation. very bad. You can get saturation in the stars, well, you cannot help it with that, but not in the nebula. But usually, you might try to get even 5, 10, 15 minutes. And you want to get everything well aligned with the sky and your stars to be point-like. Yes. Well, even though you have a very good mount, mm -hmm. and even you are doing an excellent alignment to the South Celestial Pole, that perhaps I should mention a bit more about that, probably you will not be able to get more than one, two minutes exposures. Mm -hmm. So otherwise you'll get... Yeah, tracking track, across. Tracking, you have to see the, the star trails. The, the star trails, mm. needle star trails and non points. If you are not using a system for guiding the telescope. Right. So, how does that work? Well, that is the tricky part here. Remember that I mentioned at the beginning that we need a very good mount. Mm -hmm. And the very good mount means that the mount can be very well aligned to the pole, to mm -hmm. the North Celestial Pole in the Northern Hemisphere, that is not exactly Polaris, close to, but not there, or to the South Celestial Pole, where we don't have any brighter star. Usually these good mounts, they have a polar finder, so that it has a very small tiny telescope attached in the main direction of the, of the mount. Is that a finder scope or is that different? It, it is like a finder score, but mm -hmm. it is something different. Okay. Because it has the position of the Polaris and the position of four bright stars, well, not bright, but faint stars in the Octans constellation, that is where the South Pole is located. Mm -hmm. And then you have to put Polaris in a particular position depending on the day. Mm -hmm. You have to rotate that thing. Right. Or you do the same thing with the four stars in Octantis. If you have the four stars in the southern hemisphere where they should be, then you are aligned. Mm -hmm. The tricky part here, it is that sometimes, particularly, I found that difficult. From my backyard, if I'm trying to get the south celestial pole directed to the south, I have Sydney city center with the light pollution. Oh, so that's it was, not good. It was extremely difficult for me to try to see the stars, the faintest stars through the finder score for, for getting this alignment. So I have to do some few other techniques. But if you are in a dark place, it should be straightforward. So that is one thing that you need. But I said before that the mount has to be good, not only in the sense that can do a good pole alignment, but also you can control it in some way that you can do tiny adjustments to the tracking using the information that you get from another small camera. Okay. So for doing this, you need, as I said, we set the telescope. Yes. We set the mount. Mm -hmm. We set the camera that you are taking photos yes. with. We didn't mention here that you can also get specialized cameras, even refrigerated cameras, but that's fine. <laughs> I'm just going to skip that for a moment. Then uh, the adapter for the camera. And then you need also a little telescope, a finder scope, with another camera attached. Oh, so two cameras. You need actually two cameras. One that is going to be taking photos through your main telescope, and the other one that is going to be taking usually one second exposure, very short exposure, mm -hmm. using a finder scope, and just tracking a particular star getting the centroid and sending little signals to the mount to be sure that that star is always in the center. Oh, okay. That, that is actually what we do in professional telescopes. Right. Exactly the same thing. The problem it is the complexity. Yes. That now you, you need to control the mount, to control one camera, to control the other camera, and the software that needs everything for running. So you need also even a computer. Mm -hmm. N not even. You need a computer <laughs> for that. 
Yes. So when you realize you have plenty of cables, one here, <laughs> there, and there, and you are doing everything with your computer. Yes. Luckily enough, recently there have been some few uh, companies that have produced little devices that can connect everything together and you can connect to this device using Wi-Fi and you can even control the telescope, the cameras and everything with your smartphone or tablet. Oh! Which is exactly what I have been doing. Yes. The issue here, and I know that my friend Dylan O'Donnell would say, hey, that is an option. But the problem here it is that I have a Mac. Oh, that, that's a problem. That is a problem. Oh. It is a problem because all driver software for this kind of system, it is usually under uh, Windows. Uh, no. So you need to install something in Mac for running Windows, and mm -hmm. I don't want to spend it. So I have been one of the things that have been taking me a bit of, okay, I will do it eventually, because I would rather buy a computer which is fully dedicated to do amateur astronomy that putting more stuff in my already quite heavy laptop. Mm. A couple of years ago, a company that is called ZWO, which is very good, mm -hmm. preparing cameras, astronomical cameras for all of this, released a little device that is this big, it's just perhaps 30 by 20 centimeters, something like that, that uh, is actually um, Raspberry Pi modified, and you can control everything together. And it is called ZWO. ACL and it is just amazing. Oh, fantastic. So I can even be on the bed, as I was yesterday, while the telescope, I was controlling the telescope in my backyard <laughs> using that device. Again, I'm very excited about all of this, but what I want to say is that when you are start to add, there are many things to consider, there are many little details, you need plenty of information, and you at the end, you will spend a big amount of money <laughs> Try to get all of that. So it's, it's, it's a long project if you want to get all of this really intense amount of equipment. Yes, in some way I will say that. First, go for your good telescope. Perhaps not in a very good mount. That is actually what I did. Mm -hmm. I have a very good telescope, the, the telescope, the 80mm, uh, the Black Diamond Skywatcher. I got it in 2012 for a transit of Venus, and it is very convenient because I can travel with it even with a, in a plane. Oh, that's good. It has a very nice case. The mount is heavy. The new mount mm. is heavy, but I bought it later. And then I have been adding the rest of things during the last few months as I see convenient that I need them. Yeah. Of course, if you add all the things together, at the end, you're going to spend perhaps $5,000. <laughs> perhaps not that much. Perhaps not that much. But the mount, the mount, the costs mount a lot of money. alone costs almost three times the cost of the telescope. <laughs> but worth it. It is definitely worth it. Yeah. It is definitely worth it. If you really want to do this kind of images, you need something like that. That's right. That's for sure. So, we've talked about how do we get planets, take lots of photos, how we get nebulas, deep sky objects, you take long exposures. Now that we have the data, what do we do with it? That is an excellent <laughs> question because that is the next stage that also we are not going to give many details here because it will be a full tutorial of... And it's more software yes, instead of equipment. Yes, definitely more software. It is uh, what um, many amateur astronomers like to do when it is raining, cloudy or full moon sometimes. <laughs> so you just need to process the data. Yes. I will go first for the easy kind of software. I recommend two. One for Windows that is called Deep Sky Stacker. Cool. Very good. I have used it in the past when I had Windows. And that was the way I created many of my deep images when I moved to Australia in 2007 8 and I was rediscovering the sky with the amazing southern sky. So you just put there your frames, light frames as we call them, mm -hmm. and then we add something that I didn't mention before that are the calibration data. What's the calibration data? Well, exactly the same thing that we do in the professional telescopes. The darks, 
the biases and the flat fields. Ah. <laughs> it's actually the same thing. So these are just for controlling well the response of the CCD and okay. to correct for the defects, not going into any details. I'm just giving a very broad mm. view of all of it. So you put all of those images, if you have them, of course, the, the calibration, and then you run, and it automatically aligns the stars mm -hmm. and Ooh. stack them together in the way that you ask. You can do many different things with the stacking. You can say, okay, it is an average or a medium of just reject bad points or bad uh, way of do some kind of weighting between mm -hmm. one and the other. So you. So do it does it, it does it all for you basically. It, it does all for you. And then you get a product that you can still play a bit because you also have to play to get the colors mm. and the intensities right. But I usually do that later with Photoshop. I was about to ask, do you use Photoshop as well? Then yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. So that use. will be first for stacking. Stack for them all product. together? Stacking them together. And then play with the colors. For Mac users, I strongly recommend Cyril, which is a free... Ooh, I like free. free, especially after that conversation of how much yeah, no, is this all going to cost? Free uh, data processing for astronomy, and it does exactly the same thing. In a kind of a slightly different way, but mm -hmm. it does the same thing. So you put your light frames and your calibration frames, and it does the alignment, and it works very nicely. Amazing. However, if you really want to get results, you have to pay for it too. Of course. Because you need proper specific software data that have been produced by professional astronomers at the end. Mm. The people who developed these two programs that I'm going to mention in a moment, they were, they are professional astronomers. One is PixInsight, very difficult to manage. Don't go there unless you have plenty of experience. Okay. I have only used it once and I was desperate. <laughs> <laughs> and another one that I want to test, but I haven't yet, which is called AstroPixel Processor that was released just a couple of years ago. Oh. And it since it's given plenty of also functionality and it's also very easy. The, the basic is the same. So you put the, the, the raw data and you get some image. Fantastic. But at the end of the day, once you have your final image, you have to go to some extra processing, editing processing, mm -hmm. to get the colors, the luminosity, the contrast, and so on. That yeah. I usually use Photoshop. Okay, fantastic. So we've covered a lot here, but to kind of bring us home, what is your last piece of advice for our budding new astrophotographers? I think the most important at the moment would be if you really are interested in doing this, read all what you can, watch videos, mm -hmm. tutorials in YouTube, there are plenty of them. I particularly recommend those from Trevor Jones, Astrobagia. Who you are going to meet I am. very yes. very soon in the Star Staff 3 Byron Bay and Dylan O'Donnell precisely he also have plenty of videos about how to process images mm. and how to obtain images so it's much better than the kind of broad view that I'm providing at the moment but I'm very excited and I wanted <laughs> to talk about it and of course also see other photos Yes. So there are many communities and pages in the internet. For example, in Facebook, there are many communities. Another one that is called Astrobin, which is dedicated to astronomical imaging by amateur astronomers. Cool. You go and check what they are doing with the different equipment. You will be able to get, okay, what is the best I can achieve with the equipment I have? What cameras or what other little things should I get to try to improve my results. So there is a lot of kind of research getting there. Mm. I will say that that is very important even before than buying anything as crazy. Yes, learn, learn from people who have done this for a long time mm -hmm. and put their resources out on the internet. Yes, and be sure that you know what you want to achieve. It's very different if you want to get planets or the moon or if you want to go to deep sky. Exactly. Perfect. Well, let's... Let's put this to the test and let's give us, let's give you guys a WhatsApp to, if you already have all this equipment or if you want to try and buy some and try it for yourself, let's give you a WhatsApp to try an image. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Anha? Yeah, well, uh, for WhatsApp, um, I think it is a target that I was also trying to get. I'm going to try to do my homework here mm -hmm. and the object that I'm going to recommend for WhatsApp. It is one of the objects I'm going to try to observe today, 
till when we release the next episode. Fantastic. Which is the Star Cluster M46. Beautiful. An in, open cluster. An open cluster in puppies. So oh. you can observe that from the Northern Hemisphere mainly yes, and still now, although it's still to go a bit lower in the Northern Hemisphere. Here in the Southern Hemisphere, at the beginning of the night, it is very close to the Fenit. Mm-hmm. It's around Sirius. My favourite. Sirius star. It's seriously bright. <laughs> seriously good. And my puns are seriously great. <laughs> <laughs> so it is around there. NGC 2437, it is called. It has a magnitude of 6.1. That means that's, pretty, that, that's pretty bright. Yeah. There are people that, is, that are able to identify the cluster with the naked eye in dark places. Mm-hmm. It has a size of 22.8 R minutes. So it is just a bit, well, um, I would say three quarters, a bit, long, a bit less than three quarters the size of the full moon. Perfect. So it is a large one. It is not very, very small. It is located at around 1,500 light years away. That means that the actual size of the cluster, it is around 38 light years. The total mass of the stellar cluster, it is around 450 solar masses. Not too bad. So it has something. Decent decent sized open cluster. Mm -hmm. And it is around 250 million years old. Relatively young too. But that object, and I have chosen this one because it has an extra thing. A surprise. A surprise. It has a that, surprise. That can also be a kind of a good thing for testing how good you are with your equipment. Mm. One of the stars has already evolved into the planetary nebula phase. Ooh. Well, actually, I think to remember, I have said this very, very quickly, but I think to remember that this, the planetary nebula that you see there, NGC 2438, so there is a planetary nebula in the cluster, but I think that it might be not associated with the cluster. Possibly, <laughs> <laughs> considering the age of the cluster but and I, I other to, things. I, to, I think it is unrelated. By checking here that the radio velocities do not match. So yes, it seems that it is not related, but Photogenically, it's very nice. Mm. So you see a star cluster, and you see a little roundish disk that is the planetary nebula NGC 2438. And so we have not one, but two different objects for what's up today. All two for the, the price s- of one. In the same part of the sky. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation on the equipment for astrophotography. Maybe some episodes soon we might do the software, talk about the software as well. Well, it, it depends because that can be very specific, mm. and perhaps also a bit of visual. So it will be a bit challenging perhaps even to do that in a podcast. We'll see. We'll see how we Let's go. See. But let us know what you think, everyone. And as always, please do send us some questions and some feedback. Mm-hmm. We've For- got we've got a new way that we're going to try and trial remembering all of the feedback and making sure that we answer all of your questions so put us to the test yes please do and again if you have questions particularly about astrophotography topic that we have been discussing today i will be also happy to provide some feedback perfect well Great. we'll see you next time okay thank you for listening bye bye bye